Advice. So, um, over the last two years, uh, I've told a lot of true stories on this podcast. If you were to put them into chronological order, the earliest story would be me, age nine, in Essex, in 1989, becoming obsessed with Freddy Krueger. Episode 25. After accidentally watching him and fast forward. Then uh, jumping forward 10 years to... Episode 9. Picking up again at University in Norwich, where I was investigating a secret cult that liked to get inside tumble dries. After that, it's... Episode 14. Where I leave Norwich to go and intern at The Face magazine in London, a, a short-lived affair that ended up with me having to piss in the wine glass up the London Eye after the premiere of The Matrix Reloaded. After that, there's my move to Liverpool, where I spend my time... Episode 8. Teaching creative writing in prison, then later... Episode 3. Writing fake art reviews for The Metro. Uh, eventually losing my job in 2007 that's when I returned to live with my parents in Essex furiously walking up and down the streets of my village all night every night in a kind of unwitting tribute to my spirit animal Pac-Man episode 22 then after that I, I, I moved to Cambridge and tried to restart my career as a full-time writer soon I believed I would have a profession although what I got was a debilitating respiratory problem four and an offer of a blowjob from a tramp one all that before finally moving to Peterborough with the love of my life. 24. Before finally getting into this wardrobe to begin this podcast series. 21. And then two years after that, uh, making this list. 29. Looking back, uh, I must be honest, most of those stories barely classify as stories in the first place. Uh, how am I going to keep this podcast going for even one more year two years in i've already documented so much of my life already what what possible embarrassing stories are there left to tell over gentle instrumental electronica but perhaps now that i've exploited all the usual anecdotes that i tell people in the pub uh i'm gonna be forced to go back over my life a, a second time at, at, at an even more granular level if you thought i was rinsing small episodes of my life for drama already just just wait until 2017, uh, when I'll be taking half an hour to tell you the story of the time I got a taxi in Warrington. But it, it, it will have tasteful music behind it. I, I, I promise you that. Come on, it's, it's, it's going to be a movie for your heads. I, I, I tell you though, I. I did find it useful to put all the episodes into the correct order just now because doing so, well, when you lay all your anecdotes end to end, you, you can begin to notice trends in your life. You can, you can identify the lessons that you keep not learning. Uh, it's like what my mate Tim says about the Rocky films. Taken individually, uh, they're the story of a man who conquers the odds to win, but taken all together as one big narrative, it, it's the story of a man that never knew when to give up, who realised that winning always leads to further loss. And it might actually well be the same in my life. When you collect together all the little episodes as one big box set, uh, the overarching theme seems to be I moved to a city, 
construct a fantasy world where I pretend to be a professional writer, uh, the walls of which eventually collapse, and then I move to a new city and start all over again. Now, put together like this, I think I come across as a sort of B.T. Barnum-type character, always making a swift exit in the night before the swindled can torch my van. Well, I tell you now, I don't I don't want to live the rest of my life that way. Like, I don't want to leave the town of Peterborough because I ran out of money or because I made promises to myself that I couldn't keep. And it, it, that's actually hard for me because I, I like... <clears throat> I like moving. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a migrant, understand? I came to this country at an impressionable age. Uprooting was normalised. Uh, and as such, like I don't really understand the concept of home. Oh, as far as I'm concerned, like, fuck England and fuck Scotland, they're all cunts to me. Moving is kind of in my blood. But I don't think it's healthy for me to keep moving anymore. My itinerancy... Uh, it, it normalises my other vices as as if it's okay to be a fuck-up if you know how to reset the clock. Now, so, so see, I think this subject needs a closer look, a, a, a further exploration of what it is that makes us run and what we need to make us stay. So I looked for gaps in my timeline, uh, missing episodes of my life, stuff that doesn't fit the usual pattern of, you know, fuck up and leave town. Uh, I went looking for uh, an outlier, as a man says, and, uh, and I think I found one. Nestled in between episode 22 and episode 4 is a, a missing period of about 20 months. During that period, I returned to a city that I had previously left and tried to make it work again a second time uh, now that city was Liverpool I'd left Liverpool uh, having broken up with my partner and uh, and I was also I was, I, I was massively in debt uh, and, and I had no work that I was coming back to that city for I had no relationship that I was coming back to um, the city ha- had, 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 had beaten me that's, that's how I felt you know like still rather than running away I decided I would, I would, I would, I would go back. Now, now, what was different that time? I don't know. Something in my head stopped me from walking away. Uh, the exit from Liverpool had been like particularly tough. Uh, in my lowest moments, I often try to gamify my life as a coping mechanism, and perhaps that's what happened here. Uh, I remember thinking to myself, "I don't want to leave on a loss. I want to leave on a win." Uh, I couldn't end on this down note. I had to try my luck again. So I came back to Liverpool. And I got a job. In a casino. must admit it is only in retrospect that I realized just how thematically perfect that job was so this is what we're going to try and get into the podcast today I'm going to try and take you back inside my old casino uh, in search of some stories and uh, in doing so I'm kind of hoping to, to try and get a better understanding of why it is 
that even when people lose, they come back. Imaginary advice. It really is. This game originated in ancient Greece. According to history books, Grecian soldiers used to spin their swords on their shields and try to guess where the points of the swords were going to land. And then later on, it said that Caesar himself had a roulette wheel in his gaming parlor, fashioned from an old chariot wheel. Well, the French got hold of the game in the early 19th century. They refined it, they gave it a fancy name, and it's been a casino mainstay ever since. Uh, so it was casino. It was in Liverpool. Uh, it was on. I was on the edge of uh, the the Mersey. Uh, it kind of sat on the waterfront. This uh, this kind of huge white rhombus. It kind of looked like a kind of docked cruise ship. So I remember that that first day, uh, walking in uh, at lunchtime uh, in the height of summer. And then immediately feeling like I'd lost seven hours, you know the uh, the ambient lighting designed to make the gambling floor feel permanently like 9 p.m. on a Friday night. And the whole thing felt like uh, like a cruise ship on the inside as well. The colour scheme was purple and pink. If if Prince had a cruise ship, perhaps, or you know because it was on the edge of Chinatown. If Prince had a cruise ship that he filled with chain-smoking Chinese men that never went home. Yeah, that's slightly more accurate description. Every, every new game of Mahjong was heralded by the sound of the ivory tiles being swirled against the table. It always sounded like firecrackers. For my uniform, I had to wear very tight purple trousers with no pockets so I couldn't steal anything uh, I also had to wear a large pink shirt that fit me like a tent uh, plus a sparkling purple waistcoat which really brought the whole ensemble together uh, with my kind of long straggly hair I looked like a kind of 70s funk session musician did uh, did, did, did Funkadelic have a chubby pale sad guy who just stood at the back and ate bar peanuts all day and then then that was me right so every day i would walk to and from work in my uniform uh, right through the middle of toxteth which is a uh, it's a busy inner city district of liverpool uh, one night uh, a car full of rastafarians pulled over explicitly to laugh at me but 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 things like that They'd become weird sources of power for me. Uh, a, a uniform that bad. It, it kind of actually comes full circle. The ludicrousness of walking past a gang of young lads whilst dressed like Lord Cadbury's disco valet. It would give me this, this, this sp- a spike of adrenaline so big that, um, that it quickly became its own reward. I think I'd become addicted to the high now i hadn't had a job that required a uniform in years but like it felt good to put it on to disappear into the eternal night of the casino 
found myself seduced by the strange unrealness of the place. I even read Ian Fleming's Casino Royale on my lunch breaks, pretending uh, I was serving drinks in a French coastal casino in the 1950s. The synthetic ambience of the place it made me feel like I was inside some kind of simulation, like a kind of CGI rendition of a casino. Every ceiling was covered in twinkling lights, as if you were looking up at the stars inside a video game. I'd spent about one year uh, away from Liverpool. That's, that's one year of licking my wounds back at my parents' house in Essex. One year of working as a temp, trying to raise the money for a new start. Um, and now, like, I, I, I'd finally returned, but I'd not come back as myself. I'd come back as this, this background character in a casino movie you know like I was, I was this thinly written part for a stupid thriller like my character like he had no backstory didn't have any dialogue I, I definitely didn't even I, I definitely didn't have like a name in the script I'm just guy in pink waistcoat four all I had to do was look stupid and take the money it was it was all I wanted it was perfect Croupiers get smoke blown in their faces constantly. Like all shift, every shift. Like every croupier I have ever met has been a chain smoker. Like almost by default. Like you have to smoke to do that job, or at least you used to. So uh, as a chronic asthmatic with a terrible grasp of maths, uh, management thought I was better suited to working on the bar. Um, being on the bar kind of puts you at the edges of a casino you're not experiencing like the action the thrilling risks and rewards to begin with all i saw were people buying drinks lots of drinks and people bought drinks whether they won or lost like celebration or commiseration like the outcome looked pretty much the same from where i was you know and that's confusing like this 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 inability to distinguish winners and losers. Winners got a drink and then went back to the table to spend their winnings. Losers got a drink and then went back to the table to retrieve their losses. The machine just kind of ticked over and I was none the wiser. In my spare time, uh, I went to parties and and tried to connect with the, uh, with the life that I'd had before leaving. Um, you know, people would ask me where I'd been for the last year and uh, I would just try and quickly change the subject, eager to just get drunk and try to feel like I was home again. Happy to be a background character here as well. After my first month, the casino began to feel more complicated. Stuff that was hidden from me behind the bar started to come into focus. I got my first morning shift, uh, arriving around 11am to change over the barrels. Outside, waiting nervously in the car park, a uh, guy in his mid-thirties, clearly wearing the same suit he'd been wearing the previous evening. His tie was 
knotted and slack, face pale, reeking in nicotine. He looked bad. I don't know if you've ever got gout in your thumb, but um, that's what he reminded me of. Now, perhaps this guy had slept in his car right here in the car park, or perhaps he'd made it home, but then spent all night pacing room to room, worried about how much money he'd lost. Maybe there was a partner in the bedroom upstairs or a kid. Maybe not. It doesn't matter. Like, whatever the stakes, one thing was clear. Like, this man, he'd, he'd been up all night working on a plan. You know, some way to get back all the money he'd lost. He could borrow it, maybe, or, or, or sell something, or steal something. That pale face waiting for me in the car park that morning was proof that he had settled for, well... Perhaps there was only ever one solution. Go back to the casino and win back what you've lost. You see, even after all those losses, like he couldn't leave. Like we shut the casino and he still didn't leave. Now, now I've never been much of a gambler myself, still standing in that empty car park with this guy I uh I felt like a weird connection between us but um but the meaning I I don't think it hit me until a couple of hours later in a way me and that guy we were making the same play I'd also lost but I'd come back you know both of us were determined to pull this story around to a happy ending we, I should point out, I didn't feel any camaraderie with this guy you know or if there was any bond I mean it was just the the brotherhood of fucking tools I hated that guy you know I hated him for his weakness for for our weakness you know what the what the what the fuck were we both doing here we've we've lost why have we come back that little car park scene it just began to eat away at me you know, over time, I began to notice this type of person more and more. The people who 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 are always there. You 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 rarely see that type of person at the bar. Like they tend to stay at the tables or at a stool in front of their favourite fruit machine. Uh, you know, just let all the empty pound coin baggies just pile up around them on the floor. Like in in a busy place that's full of light and noise, it, it's really easy to overlook these little pockets of quiet where. The really serious money's getting burnt. Months were passing, and Liverpool, like it wasn't getting any less painful for me. I, I, I was sleeping on the floor of my friend's place. Just walking down a random street would end up bringing back sharp memories of my ex-girlfriend, of the person that I was before. She, I mean, she'd always be nearby, and I would keep moving away, trying to cut her out, trying to reframe the scene, pre- pretending as if it hadn't happened, that, that, that it wasn't still happening. Like, I didn't know how to make my life better. Like, I didn't know what new things I wanted out of life. I just wanted back as many of the things that I'd lost as possible. I just wanted to be on even keel. And uh, and, and, I, and, and I wonder if, if gamblers feel the same. You say to yourself, I just want to get back to zero. 
in a way, I think that's what keeps you institutionalized. That that's what stops you from changing your game. And it, and if it, if it and if it feels like I'm projecting, you're probably right. I just think it was easier for me to see these flaws in the casino than it was for me to see them in myself. I just wanted them to leave and then never come back. During a quiet moment at work, I wrote a poem for myself on the back of a till receipt. It was a, it was a poem about a gambler who one day decides to finish his game, leave, and then never return. But um, as soon as he makes that decision, it's as if the casino comes alive and it begins to do everything that it can to stop him leaving. Hang on. Hang on, let me, let me read you a little bit from it. He grinds out the cigarette, pushes back the chair, and the croupier winks the silent alarm. His adversaries look up, their yellow fingers clashing on the purple felt. A free drink has been scrambled, but it's too late, too late. This moment is the only window he needs. He flips a chip to the maitre d', then vanishes sideways into the crowd, half man, half Bellagio hair gel. He slips through their fingers like love. The maitre d' opens his hand, a chocolate doubloon, and it's not even Christmas. Now, of course, this little till receipt daydream is nothing compared to the the epic fantasy that's told by the casino itself. Uh, the, the story that makes people stay in the building and keep playing. So uh, what fantasy is that, you ask? Well, casinos are entertainment. And entertainment usually requires a story of some kind. Nothing seduces you like a good story. And the most successful examples of entertainment tend to keep the story simple. And I end up spending a lot of time at work like trying to understand what that story was. The further I got from the bar, the clearer that story became. So of course, in order to get a grip on the fantasy world of the casino, you really have to enter the gambling pit itself. It's here in the pit that the fantasy starts to make sense. This is the place where gambling terminology connects with the language of movies, in particular, uh, the thriller genre. Uh, I mean, after all, how many thrillers do you know where the trailer tells us that the stakes are high or uh, that a character must overcome the odds or someone says it's a hundred to one shot but it might just work I mean these type of narratives are all about risk uh, like all the best thrillers casinos pull huge consequences out of very small actions do you remember uh, North by Northwest? Everything bad that happens to Cary Grant happens because he signalled a waiter. Uh, it's just like a round of poker. Like, it was nothing more than the wrong hand at the wrong time. 
Now compare that to a football match. Where, where, where every small consequence is greeted with huge demonstrative acts of screaming and crying. That, that's melodrama. Ugh. Uh, whereas uh, the thrills of a casino are all about subtext. Like the struggle is all internal. Double the blind. Akie. I call. Check. It's practically silent. It's, you know, it's Hitchcock's pure cinema in action. No, the story a casino sells to its patrons must be a thriller. Because uh, the thing that defines a thriller isn't the ending. I mean, who cares about Frodo drifting away on a magic boat? No, it's all about the tense stuff in the middle. It's the second act that gives a thriller its thrills. What seems fascinating about casinos is that they have found a way to loop that second act over and over, creating this epic recycling sequence. Just as one tension is resolved, the result of that throws you straight back into another one. It's like a car chase on a Mobius strip, winning or losing money doesn't feel like the ending of the story. The money's just the MacGuffin. It's the Maltese Falcon or the suitcase in Pulp Fiction. We don't really care who has it at any one time. What we want is for the MacGuffin to be constantly changing hands because tension is its own reward and we are never sated. Now, we're familiar with the idea that casinos tend not to have windows or clocks, you know, that they balance the light so it always feels like the evening. Uh, this is what is so confusing about, about, about life inside a casino. It's because they're not selling the full story. It's just a highlight reel. It's a looped DVD menu, slowly driving you crazy. And even if you want to push through for some sort of closure, the casino will do everything in its power to send you back to the start. The elders twitch in their penthouse cryotubes. A desiccated finger drags across a touchscreen. The casino grins, its vestibule swarming. Doors become walls, walls become doors. Hypno carpets crank from arouse up to baffle. But our hero, dear reader, our champion deserter, knows every move the casino can make. A biro diagram drawn on his wrist as he glides through each dead end, a ghost in the funhouse. Tuxedoed thugs cram into the stairwell, tasering a heart-shaped balloon as they pass. Yet, somehow, our man is already on the mezzanine. Nothing but a glitch in the time code of the cameras. A shortcut through a styrofoam Trevi fountain, his jacket swapped with a kitchen porter. A sweaty lieutenant on the video screen. Sir, we found his hat on a polystyrene tanuki, but he's gone. The pit boss kills the transmission, opens a command line to the casino's core program. He hacks the metaphor, then reboots the system, lets the casino protocols process the change. The casino 
is freedom now. The casino is success. The casino is the happy ending. It burns with newfound purpose. The architecture responding, growing, folding our hero into its dreams. Holding patterns can't last forever. Loops are unstable. You can try and stay within the perpetual cycle of the second act, but stasis is a fantasy. You've been decaying in that loop, losing money and grey matter with every cycle. Eventually, the loop will break. Something will happen that forces you out. So hang on, let's just change the music into uh, something more suitably third act. Okay, so, after about six months, the casino promoted me. I left the bar and moved into the office. Now, I was responsible for maintaining the casino's mailing list. Pensioners, this Tuesday is pension day. Why not celebrate at the casino? Spend it now while you still can, come on. Your grandkids aren't going to go to university anyway. I got to shed the purple Stardust uniform and wear a normal suit. I had free access to wander around the casino to watch the security cameras and listen in to the management meetings. I remember having the same thought over and over. I am Satan. I thought that a lot. <laughs> I did. Uh, you know, in meetings at my desk, you know, standing on the balcony over the gambling pit, I am Satan, I am Satan. My job, it just felt so reprehensibly immoral. There could be no, I, there could be no justification for what I did, but six months is a long time, and that's long enough inside the universe of the casino to believe that self-awareness was somehow enough. It was just a game, and that was all. And the game was bigger than all of us. You just had to play your part. Proof, if you needed it, that I'm not a particularly nice person. But I'd like to argue that my shift from innocent drone to evil overlord is an incredibly easy one. And crossing the floor happens more than we'd like to admit. You can take a bad job with an ironic smirk. But you go do something ironically for six months. And see if you can still remember what the point of the joke is. My friend Stu had a similar situation with the band... S Club 7. Is it a joke, Stuart? Is it funny that you love S Club 7? Is that why you blew £60 in a ticket to see them at Hammersmith Apollo? Is it? Is the front row more ironic, Stuart? Is it? Are those ironic tears of joy? Or what does the S stand for in S Club 7, Stuart? Don't pretend you don't know. Don't pretend. The move from fake to real is almost imperceptible. For me at the casino... It was about an extra 20p per hour. Ka-ching. One night, uh, around 3am, um, a weeknight, I was getting ready to go home, doing my final checks, engaged in my usual mantra, I am Satan, I am Satan, uh, next to my coat in the cloakroom, there was another coat, a nice blue corduroy number uh, that blue coat had been hanging in the cloakroom for a few days now clearly it had been left by a customer having been there the best part of a week I reasoned probably no one's going to collect this not now three days 
That's the moratorium uh, on leaving a coat in a place. Not a judge in the land would call this theft. Recycling, that's probably what he'd call it. I thought to myself, I always wanted a coat like that. So I put it in my bag and took it home. Now, that's not how I would normally behave, you understand. I've never really stolen anything before. Still, after six months working in the casino, I wasn't myself. I was a background henchman for a cartoon supervillain. I, I wasn't really here at all. That night, I had the most terrible sleep. I, I lay on my mattress on the floor of my mate's spare room, turning my crime over and over in my head. Somehow, caught up in the moment of my escapade, I'd, I'd forgotten exactly who I was stealing from. Like, I wasn't stealing from a punter, you know, some anonymous mark for whom losing their coat was just one more loss and an evening of stupid losses. No, like, I, 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 was, I was stealing from the casino. And there is a very good reason why people don't steal from casinos. Primarily because they are riddled with security cameras. Every minute of every cubic inch of a casino is recorded and documented. You can't just pick up something and walk out the front door. The casino knows what you've done. How could I forget this? You know, like I'd been in the security room only the week earlier. Stood right in front of that grey monolith of TV screens, 20 black and white casinos in front of me, like I was watching the entire first season of Man From Uncle at the same time. Now, I would be on those tapes. And if the coat was reported missing, there was almost certainly a camera in the cloakroom. It would take minutes to track me down. And then what? And then what? So I put the jacket back into my bag. I got dressed back into my suit. The sun was up by that point and slept a wink and I, and, I, and I made the walk back through Toxteth through crowds of mums and pushchairs young Muslim kids arriving for the morning prayer I remember the sunlight was so bright and cold you know usually I would be jonesing for the perma night of the casino by that point you know to go and hide inside it's endless daydream but today it felt like appeasing an angry god I was a sacrifice, ready to be thrown into the volcano. Entering the building, I went straight to the cloakroom, hung the jacket back up. I even did a little silent role play, miming for the security cameras. I held up my own jacket next to the stolen one, as if to say, Oh, they do look similar. No wonder I accidentally took the wrong one home. Smacks palm against forehead, shrugs, slaps thigh, exit. Next, I went to talk to my old bar manager. Oh, mate, last night, you won't believe it, I took the wrong jacket home. Oh, yeah, he said. Yeah, I said. Oh, I must have been really tired. And of course, my, my bar manager wouldn't care if I stole a jacket, and he's not in any position to discipline me for it, even if he did care. But I know for a fact that the bar is secretly mic'd for sound. It's, uh, it's an adjustment all the bar staff need to make, rather than slagging off management. You roleplay nicely, save the nasty stuff for the car park. Yeah, I said. Yo, I've brought it back now. 
Uh, I don't think anyone would have missed it. It was only gone a few hours. Right, said the bar manager. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure people do that kind of thing all the time. I didn't know if he was speaking to me or the security booth. A few days later, the owner of the casino came by the office to, uh, to pay me a visit. You're doing good, Ross. Steve, that's my immediate boss. He, uh, he likes you a lot. He says you're a hard worker. Thank you, I said. The owner pointed at me. Management material, he said. And then left. So that was my last week at the casino. No one ever mentioned anything to me about the coat, but something had changed inside me. And uh, and if this episode has run long, it's because I've been kind of using this episode to, to try and work out exactly what changed. And uh, I don't know. He, 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 here's what I've come up with. I think that um, casinos, they are such documented places both in terms of security cameras and also through their iconography and fiction you you, you can't help but feel like you're stepping into the background of a film but like when I stole the jacket I moved from a background character into the starring role suddenly I wasn't an extra robotically moving through the scene someone whose job is essentially to blend in with the architecture I was the main character I felt as if all the cameras were looking directly at me and being brought into focus like that made me acknowledge responsibility for my actions like all all, all my actions and that's why I decided I think to leave the casino because I I wasn't in a job that made me happy and and I vowed that I needed to find a job that did make me happy suddenly it was my film and I had to direct it myself which is why I left the casino and went and got a job working in the accounts department for the Alliance and Leicester in Bootle so okay I mean and, uh, right, and um I know okay that one I mean the, the, the the biggest step forward, but it was, it was a less evil job than working in a casino, marginally less evil. And then after that, I went and worked for a local university. Again, that's a bit better than before. Uh, and, then, and then eventually after that, uh, I, I, I ran out of money again and I fucked up and I had to move back in with my family. Because, look, right, the, the moral of the story is not if you take control of your life, you will reach your destiny or that you will even be happy. Right? That's clearly bollocks, right? We all know that's bollocks. But if I did learn anything from the casino, um, it's it's that we're all gamblers. We're all gambling all the time, you know, with love and our futures, our health, our happiness, and 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 rightly so too. You know, we're always coming back to the table to take another shot. The question is just whether or not you care about the stakes. Because you will win some, but you'll lose more. But the important thing is that they all matter. Like, every single gamble matters. That's the tough part. The tough part is caring about every single bet. 
And it can be hard to feel those ups and downs. When you stay at the table too long, the world shrinks back uh, until it's just you and a stool and a fruit machine. I mean, I mean, suddenly like you can't feel the stakes anymore. You can't go to a house party and, and, and just pretend your ex-girlfriend isn't there. Because at that point, the only thing you're holding on to is inertia. Like you've trapped yourself inside a story that has no third act. You pushed to the back of someone else's film. Dude, you just got to... Just fucking leave. Just leave the party. Because it's, because it's only once you do that that you can start to mourn the things you've lost. Like, rather than pretending they don't matter. This, uh, this, this country is it's constantly under the scrutiny of security cameras. Around the clock, right? Yeah, we're all starring in these secret films of our lives. And yeah... Somehow, we've forgotten the oldest rule of showbiz. Sometimes, if you want a comeback, you have to go away. Look, there he goes. He's cleared the perilous spiral staircase for lobby sways no trap doors and out across the empty car park under a cosmos of shorted fiber optics leaving the odds crippled on the bank of an accelerated estuary he is nothing but a black speedboat seen only by the glitter of its wake Imaginary Advice That's all for imaginary advice this time. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, apologies for like the, the, the delay in episodes. This is sad. I actually I've actually lost an episode two weeks ago. Uh, I recorded uh, my set at Number Six Festival in Port Merion in Wales, and I was going to upload that uh, that set as a kind of special live episode. But my my new road clip microphone malfunctioned and didn't record anything. So. Uh, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, next episode, though, should be special. It's episode 30, and it's also the two-year anniversary of the podcast. So um, look out for that. Uh, it's going to be coming out in about a month's time. Talking of making huge life gambles, uh, my first ever play opened in London this week. Uh, it's... Uh, yeah, it, it, by play I mean like it's a it, it's a it's a drama that I'm not starring in. That I I just wrote. Um, it's called Party Trap, and it's uh, it's an hour long palindrome. 
that, uh, that I've, I've wrangled into a thriller of sorts. Uh, a politician and a journalist clash during a live TV interview that quickly gets out of hand. Uh, I'm very excited about it. This is such a, a, a ludicrous idea. This, you know, like to create, you know, to, just to see what a palindrome looks like once kind of turned into theatre. It's, it's just so amazing to see people going, you know, putting so much time and effort into this this huge, terrifying gamble. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so as I mentioned, it, it, it's a palindrome. So, you know, once you get halfway through the story, all the dialogue starts running back in the opposite direction. Uh, how, how is that even possible? Well, well imaginary listener uh, you, you, you're just gonna have to buy a ticket to to find out um, i'm gonna be around for quite a lot of the performances so if you are planning to come down uh drop me a message and 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 tell me and uh come and say hi um if you'd like to support the podcast uh we need your help desperately uh, uh you can support the podcast through patron.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n uh, i really need your help uh, as the podcast gets more and more ambitious, it takes more and more time to make, and uh, yeah, and, and so any help that you can you can give is gratefully received. I will put the link to my Patreon page within the uh, the, the liner notes of this episode. Thank you so much to everyone who is continuing to support the podcast so far. Um, yeah, I couldn't do it without you. Um, that's all from. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what. Incidentally, little factoid from something earlier in the episode. Uh, uh, the, the, if you want to know, the, the, the S in S Club 7, if you don't know what it stands for, stands for 7. 7 Club 7. That's the, that's, that's the real name of, of, of the group. That's a, that's a closely guarded secret. Uh, but uh, now you know. So uh, keep it to yourself. So that's all from Imaginary Advice. Thanks for listening. (laughs) ¶¶